Ignition sequence starts. Three, two, one. Welcome back to University, everybody, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about Earth, existence, and the unknown. I'm AJ Perrin. With me, as always, is the fabulous... Judson Martin. And with me, as never before, special guest, Nate Pinto. Hey, guys. It's Nate. It's Nate. Um, You guys are going to love Nate. Or at least, if you don't love Nate, you'll probably like him more than us, which is our goal with any guest. But if you don't like him, then you can probably just tone him out and listen to us anyways. Yeah. And if we don't like him, the best part is we just delete him from the episode. And so if you don't hear Nate, it's because we didn't like him. Yeah. The internet is a, pow- <laughs> the internet is a powerful thing, and we can just delete people if we want. So. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Computing, which is like, how, how, would you, how are you going to delete his audio without a computer? So. Let's um, quick, we're, we're going to skip over news this episode because we've got a lot of new or we got a lot of stuff to cover. But one thing I saw that I just want to talk to you guys about is that, have you heard of Spin Launch? Uh-uh. I, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I expected you to. Actually, have, yes, I have. Yes. It's the thing. Yeah. yeah. They, they, it's like slingshotting essentially a rocket into space. It's, it's, <laughs> so that, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's cool like though. A, yeah. It's, it's the whole idea is to reduce carbon emissions by like slingshotting and it's not like a bungee cord slingshot it's like a rotating you know when you swing a tennis ball in a yeah. sock that's what they do and then they let go of the sock essentially you can look it up spin launch but super controlled i just think the been only doing cool tests. part when you take like the fire away from the rocket what do you like it's not even a rocket anymore like. well that i think that's a cool thing honestly no. there's gonna be rocket once you get to space but they just don't need to hold all that fuel and like the size of the rocket is so much, much smaller cool to watch though i mean yeah. maybe it is kind of cool to throw something into space but i don't yeah. think the energy required to do that i don't know how they're gonna do it yeah but they have to they shoot it out of a vacuum chamber because um they can get it going faster if there's less air resistance yeah and the it's funny when it launches, it like tears through this like fabricy stuff, which opens the vacuum chamber and it shoots itself out into space. So it's it's cool to just look it up. But they've been doing tests over the last year, and I honestly would do a whole episode on it. Interesting. Um, but yeah, dude, India landed yes, a yes, rover in three on the what was it? The furthest south south pole ever on the moon, and it's a hard landing. Which yeah yeah. So go my country, but. No, no it's, it's, it was pretty cool because they, um, I think they did it way ahead of their original schedule and on a very tight budget. They were budget. 4% yeah. of their entire budget, their entire budget, only 4% they needed to do the hardest moon landing that's ever happened. Yeah. And they have a budget that's like one thirtieth already of what NASA's is or one twenty fifth or something like that. So they're already operating on like 1.6 billion instead of 33 billion. And they only need four percent of that budget. It was seventy-five million total, which is like, oh, that's a lot of money. But to be able to test this equipment, and it's all expensive and gold-plated. It's like this gets up there easy. Yeah, I wonder if this is going to start some type of new space race with just how efficient it is. Yeah, and how true. cheap. True. Right? Well, everything's going to continuously just get cheaper and cheaper as it. Yeah. You know, as as, as we discover technology, there'll obviously be a an entry pr- cost that will always be the same. But yeah. like the like you said, the um. The spin launch was one way to cut costs because you don't have to use fuel. Exactly. So, so there's that uh, to keep track of. Let's quick get into brain gains where we talk about what we've learned this week quick before the episode starts. I'll start. One thing I learned this week is that you you have two like main kinds of sweat glands, okay? And one of the sweat glands you're born with. This is just like how your body keeps itself cool and it um, sweats off water and electrolytes. But this stuff doesn't inherently smell. It doesn't smell bad at all. It's actually the second kind of sweat gland that you get when you um, like hit puberty. That, that is what sweats out dead cells and like the stuff that your body recycles. It sweats off that dead stuff. And it's the bacteria living on the outside of your body eating that stuff and then pooping it out, which smells. That's B.O.? Yeah. So like whenever I'm walking by Nate in the gym and I'm like, dang it, he smells bad. It's the secondary sex. Funny sex you bring that up though. It takes about an hour for these bacteria to digest the stuff they're eating off of your body. So the first hour of you sweating, you can't even smell. Even if you got right out of the shower and like 
went to work as hard uh, as you can, you won't smell. Those are the computer science majors. Stuff, yeah. Because they, <laughs> they, they've been, they haven't showered for much longer than just one hour. you got to be dangerous, though, because there's going to be computer science people listening to this episode. Yeah, this is... Well, I hope not. If we're explaining know. yeah, a computer to a computer science major, uh, I don't know. Yeah, just, that's true. So you smell. It's not you. It's just bacteria poop. It's bacteria poop. That's why you smell. Yeah. Yeah, it's not your fault. It's your fault. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's your fault. But, well, so then what is... But, so, but that's why kids don't wear deodorant. I didn't know that. I guess I couldn't remember if I wore deodorant as a child, but I guess now that I think about oh. it, I, di- I definitely did <laughs> yeah, it. But kids did don't that. smell because right. they don't have those secondary smoke wonder, like... What does deodorant even do? I think it either A, clogs the pores, which you sweat out of, or B, I think the like bacteria. the different... Maybe yeah, it's a or, combination. Yeah, or kills the bacteria. Mm-hmm. So one of those. It's a deo- like a deodorizer is supposed to, or antiperspirant is supposed to yeah. clog the pores, and a deodorizer is supposed to kill the bacteria. Probably. Because you still sweat with deodorant, but you might not smell as much. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Nate, what did you learn this week? Okay, so... We learn in manufacturing and when they're building stuff, they design things for the worst case scenario. And so like, for example, if you're building a bridge, there's a certain clearance that the Department of Transportation says that you have. But that's based off of when the road is the tallest it'll be because it won't stay the same height. And the truck too moves and up and down because you like inflate the tires and stuff like that. So the truck's height is variable. Exactly. Yeah. And the bridge's height is also variable depending on conditions of the bridge. And so, for example, if you see 11 foot 8 clearance on a bridge, it's not actually necessarily your everyday what is the max height you can be. It's on the worst given day. So that's why they still have those tr- like trucks that lead in front of them with the cable that sticks all the way up to make sure they can get under the bridge. Cause like I've never seen that before. You, you've never seen that. No, I guess not. That's like a big thing. I like there's, that's what there's like, I'm not cars. an avid truck watcher. <laughs> I know that's cars. a regular <laughs> thing for you to do, but I don't, I don't watch that. Like if you're an oversized load, I don't know if you're required to have them, but if you're an oversized load, like there's trucks that will drive in front of the, Oh, I think I might have seen the that truck thing. driver and they have like a giant pole. That's the height of the sure oversized load and they go yeah. under the bridges first. Yeah. You but so if it's like, where it was yeah. 11 foot, 11 foot eight.com, look it up and it's just trucks. Oh crashing yeah. Into that one small bridge. And yeah, that, mm-hmm. yeah, I've seen those. But so it's like, if the bridge is at its lowest, you're saying Nate, and the truck is at its highest that you have to build the bridge. So there's still clearance between the lowest bridge on a given day and the highest truck on a given day. Which So that's like the worst case scenario. Lowest bridge, highest truck. And we looked it up and it's actually, if they say 11 foot clearance, that's where you are like scraping the top. Yeah. So in reality, you can't really have an 11 foot eight truck. Yeah. Cool. Jed, what did you learn this week? Um, So this comes from Maddie 273. Probably all of our favorite course. Are we in school or something? Do we learn things in classes? Probably all our favorite course. You know, the the professors might be listening to this right now. Oh my gosh. Um, Shout out. But... (laughs) I learned about that like colored diamonds are actually like they come from impurity. The color in diamonds come from impurity in the diamond, which means people are spending extra money on more like, worse diamonds. I think, but so like when we call it an impurity, it's an impurity like, could it's a kind of a bad, it's a bad word to describe them because it's like, yeah, because impurities can have unwanted. positive benefits right. too. And I think people think that the color is a positive benefit, but it's still... Yeah. Yeah, it's not paying, a pure they're diamond. They're extra for impure yeah, yeah. diamonds. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, well, that's enough of that. Let's get right into Scan for Intelligent Life. Judd, here's your riddle for the day. If AJ forgets to come up with a riddle to tell you on the podcast, what should you do? Just skip the segment. Skip the segment. Okay, yay. That's what we we're going to do. It. We're going to get right into <laughs> computing and stuff like that. Yeah, so today, um, if you didn't know by the episode title, we're going to be talking about computing and the history of computing. And where we're going with computing, which, spoiler alert, is most likely quantum computing. Um, so we're going to get into all of that stuff starting right now. Um, here's something to just get our thoughts, like, rolling on computing, right? So I was watching, like, a lot of videos talking about just what computing has meant over, like, the period of human existence, right? Because digital computers is a newer thing, and but, the, like, the term computer has been around for... A couple hundred years and there's even been computers around for some would say thousands of years there is an article called as we may think um and this is the most read article ever published by the atlantic uh, magazine and it 
has to do with uh, Vannevar Bush, who is the author. This is his dreams of how the increasing reliability, ease of use, and manufacturability of machines will transform society. In this article, like 1945 is ahead of its time. So let me just read you a quick quote from it. And I think like of any person who wrote something in the past that has like significance today, like this is it. He's like, I don't know. The foreshadow is nuts. All right, ready? Listen to this. I always got to take a big breath before I get into a long quote because it's like the... Yeah, take a deep breath. Yeah. Make sure you get it all out in one. Because you have to make... Like when you're saying someone's quote, you can't do wrong by them by saying like... Yeah. You have to say it right, you know? Yeah. And uh, this person has probably passed away. Definitely passed away. So it's like... Honor this their is memory. Yeah. Honoring their memory. Okay. Well, no need to put pressure on me, but all right. Machines with interchangeable parts can now be constructed with great economy of effort. Note the automatic telephone exchange, which has hundreds of thousands of such contacts and yet is reliable. The precise location and alignment involved in its construction would have occupied a master craftsman of the guild for months. Now it is built for 30 cents. The world has arrived at an age of cheap, complex devices of great reliability, and something is bound to become of it. Judd, I would say, you can tell me if you agree with this. I said, as we people grew as a society in both prosperity and numbers, we had to teach ourselves how to count things a little better and to keep track of all these numbers. Yeah, no, that was like the start of, like the first computer, the first quote unquote computer was called an abacus. And essentially it was a bunch of stones like on sticks. Um, and you would slide one stone over, although there were nine stones on each stick. So you'd slide nine stones over and then you'd just go up one more stick and slide one stone over to get to 10. Yeah, and then you have back. to slide the back So it was a way back, for yeah. counting things like cows, for example, or like money. Um, yeah, did you well, guys use one of these in preschool? Money, currency. I used yeah, one Yeah, I definitely used one, yeah. Yeah, you didn't? I mean, those no. things are like like a typical like preschool person's toy. Like, a, not person, they're a Toy? Child. Like a toy. That's like, the worst toy ever. No, you a don't toy see is like an RC car. Those, where they like slide an RC I, car for a preschool. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get well, out of here. I don't know. Maybe not. You weren't able to control one. I was. I yeah, was. You were not a coordinated child. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyways, um, um, yeah. So that the abacus was a way just to keep track of things. It wasn't. It didn't really have any arithmetic function. You couldn't do any like math, obviously. You just, but it's for counting. Right. But yeah. it was, you counted on it. So it was a way to store. It was a way to store information. Because if you were, as populations grew and like number of cattle grew or things like that, um, it was, you couldn't just keep track of all that in your head. So you wanted a place to store it. And that's what the abacus was for. Yeah. Built in memory function. <laughs> yeah. Which Rocks. Is, which is, you know. <laughs> yeah. The no. first ever hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> was an abacus. That's cool. Um, another example of like something that stored information where this was actually like able to calculate information is called an astrolabe. And this was a way for sailors to, um, like, s calculate their latitude based on, I think, how, like, I don't exactly know how it worked. But I know it just was a way for them to calculate their latitude, which yeah. is cool. It's cool. also, like, the, the sextant is, a like, a another seafaring instrument of some sort that was used to, like, measure yeah. your location. But the thing about that that I think is funny is, like, there's no, you've ever, you've seen pictures of them, obviously. I don't think I would be able to actually like use one it seems like way too complex for me yeah. to figure out well, how these to use old this. computers as we'll get into these ones that i'm going to talk about next are like so complicated like they're really complex yeah it's like them. computers today anybody can kind of pick up and use one yeah and it's it's simple but that's not always been the case no. um i guess the next thing we get into is the first use of the word computer um and so this was by a it was a job listing in like a paper or something like that. And it was just for a person f to do calculations for like some mathematician. Yeah. Um, which is just interesting. Like the first use of the word computer was our person. mind. Such yeah. a human. And when you like look at the ranking of computers today and how they add up, like the me how we measure the ability of computers is by how fast a human can do a calculation. So like we are the most basic form of a computer. Yeah. Well, not the most basic. Well, because like our brain complex, is really complex. Yeah. But okay. the most, uh, L, not I don't even know how to say it. We're we're like the slowest computer compared to what we have now. True. But anyways, and that was the whole point of computing was create something that could do things faster than we could. Yeah. And that's that's what they do, and I think the innovations that we've been able to create 
in computing to fuel other other innovations are just that's really interesting. I'm nodding my head like slowly, like I I definitely <laughs> the the listeners can't agree with that. you. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I know I have to when when you say something cool, I have to be like nodding. nodding. Yeah, I always say I. Yeah, I don't remember what I always say. I think I, I know say, what yeah. you always say. You say, ex- yeah, exactly. Oh, that's exactly. cool. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know yeah. that because I edit these, and then at the end, it's like I'm going through. I say something exactly. I say something exactly. I always have my my go to words. Next up, the step reckoner. So this was the first um ca- this was the first calculator. So it was it's not really a computer, but the first kind of computers were to do arithmetic, so you think of a calculator. Um the idea was that this could do larger calculations um faster than a human because uh, they were they were getting I believe this was first used for like military purposes for calculating the trajectory of artillery. Yeah. So that because when you're out on the battlefield, you, you don't have time to do a quadratic formula to figure out the distance yeah. that this artillery is going to travel. Um, you have to, you know, just have a, they have a table. Is, so they calculated, they pre-calculated all these calculations using a step reckoner and they put it all on a table so that yeah. when you're out there, you could say, I need to hit this enemy 200 feet away. So I'm going to go to this angle and this um, turning or whatever. So yeah. they turned the dial to that s- setting. Um, so that's what these were first used for. And it was a mechanical computer with a bunch of gears essentially that turned and were able to do basic calculations like addition and subtraction. You made me think of something with the pre-calculated tables. So like the funny thing about the pre-calculated tables is if you change the, one of the variables in that equation. So for example, artillery, like you change the size of the artillery that you're shooting or whatever, you got to make a whole new table. So we needed better ways to um, handle multiple variables at once. And then there's this guy in the 19th century named Charles Babbage who tried to do this with something called the difference engine, um, which was actually like, it weighed like two tons or something yeah, like that. That was a big thing. And it, it's not like it was a step reckoner that, you know, step reckoners were still expensive, which is why they made the pre-calculated tables. Um, but this is another level of expensive. Like there was only, I think maybe... Maybe there's one difference engine, you know, yeah. it's two tons, um, but it could do things like handle polynomials or quadratic formulas or whatever and hold multiple variables. Um, so I don't thought that was cool. Yeah, no, it definitely was. But um, yeah, changing the tables when there's a new variable involved, that's tough. Mechanical computers are really interesting to me because it's like, I don't know, it's just so different than what we do now. And like there's, I think there's a video by Veritasium, um, as there's a mechanical integrator, so it can do integration mechanically, which oh. is so crazy. Like, how do you do an integral mechanically? Somehow we're able to calculate the area under a curve mechanically, which is just, I don't know, it's interesting. Charles Babbage wanted to expand on the difference engine, actually make something called the analytical machine, and that was like another level of mechanical because that was supposed to have like memory and like this weird form of a printer and stuff like that. It never got built, but I was just like, as you're saying that, I was like, the, th- the, f- the things we, that people envision that we could do calculate mechanically is just like in the complexity of that, like we were yeah. saying earlier, I can't wrap my head around that. I'm just glad I can pull out my phone calculator and do all that yeah. now simply. You should pull up I see you have something pulled up, so tell us about that, and then you should look up the mechanical integrator. You're looking at the pif- picture Nate, of the different Nate, look that right? up. Yeah, Jamie, look that up. Who's so Jamie? It's, it's, it's Joe Rogan's uh, oh, like, video. I'm always, the lookup guy? Jamie, look that up. Jamie, but now up. we have Nate look that up. I'm the lookup guy now. So tell us about what you have. There. Yeah, so I looked up, I've been looking up the different computers that you guys have been talking about, and it's kind of cool to see just how it just gets bigger like yeah. as yeah. we go. Size. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I mean, it makes sense because as you get more complex, you get bigger. But now we have like, you know, small. Yeah, we're doing the opposite. We're computers. like getting smaller. Yeah. yeah. We'll cool. get into that. I have more stuff on that later too. Just the how we're able to store more information in less space. That's actually weird though to think about. It's like, you're right. Because like over the last couple of centuries, the computers had to get bigger as they got more complex. And now the only way to get more complex is to go smaller. That's Which weird. Which is kind of crazy. But That's now, weird. and I'll get into this, but we're going to have to start going bigger again because we're going to hit a physical limit of how small we can go. All right, Judd, take us on a tour of the other computers. 
So the first computer yes, that this guy wants me to talk it. about right now is the Turing machine. Yeah. Because, yeah, that was good. Hey, thanks. <laughs> that was bad. That was bad. I'm cutting that out yeah, that you said to, that. We're going to have to cut this all out. <laughs> no, now. I'm keeping it in that you said it was good. And then I'm going to keep it in that you said it was bad and you wanted me to take it out, but I didn't. Whatever. All right. So the Turing machine um, was a it was a tool used by code breakers during World War II, World War II to crack the Enigma machine. The Enigma machine was this way. You had to put in a certain password on a given day that the Germans would send out to everybody that had an Enigma machine. Enigma machine and then that, that would um, decrypt this message. And the Enigma machine had something like on the order of trillions of combinations, I believe. Um, so there was no way to just guess and get lucky and, and break the Germans' code. We had to figure out how this machine worked and, and learn their code. The we had to reverse way. engineer a computer by only knowing the codes. So Alan Turing, who was a British mathematician at the time, um, was assigned to this task and he worked with it. He led a team who originally just wanted to try to break the code using current methods. He, instead, he hypothesized this idea of creating a computer to do it. And at the time, that was like a really irrational idea. And so he almost like got fired from that job and didn't get to make it. But if you, there's a really cool movie on it called yeah. The Imitation Game. And that's kind of how I know all this. But And the music is fire. Yeah, it's a really good movie. This was called a electromechanical computer so you would set a mechanical dial to a certain setting and then there's a bunch of nodes that were each these dial these dials and you'd set the the node to whatever setting you needed it to be and then that computer would run all those calculations and then you would change another setting and it would continue to run you set it to whatever settings you need but then there's an electric current that flows through the dial in a certain way that does the calculation I, we don't need. I, we don't need to get too into the no. explanation. But uh, <laughs> no. the Turing machine is cool. Yeah, but it was the first computer. One example of the first computer. Yeah, it was a, the first computer that could handle any function, any mathematical function, or not any mathematical function, but you would give it a function and it could handle any finite set of symbols. So, I don't know. It was interesting. So the Turing machine. This kind of seems like this is the transition from our computers being numerical, numerically based to now being symbolically and more alphabetically like trying to. Right. Well, because like, yeah, because all the other stuff we were doing is counting, but you're saying this one is like breaking a code that includes numerical stuff. It also used binary. This wasn't the first time that we, a computer had used binary, but it was punching holes in paper, these long strips of paper. Forget what the actual computer, what they called it. Oh, Siri. <laughs> they no. called it Siri. Cortana? <laughs> Alexa? I don't remember. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it was probably one of those. I think it was Alexa. I forgot what I was going to say now. You <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the next computer. I wanted, to, I wanted to highlight one that actually was created here at Iowa State University long ago. Um, and this computer was called the Antisoft Berry computer. Um, and this one was significant because it was the first automatic electronic digital computer which is a mouthful, and yeah. I don't really know all the specifics of it. But this was the first computer to use these things called vacuum tubes. Um, which had originally been being used already for, like, phones and stuff, right? Yeah. Like, that's what the operators would plug. It's plug the things in, you know, the old pictures of phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, okay. They're very similar to the, these vacuum tubes. Are, you can kind of think of a light bulb. It's, it's pretty similar, honestly. They do emit light. Um, well, some of them do if you if there's a gas in there and anyways the vacuum tubes but the whole idea is it's a vacuum but there's trace amount of gas anyways <laughs> the vacuum tubes are a there's two diodes on either side of this vacuum and then they're able to transmit um like an electric current if they it's, it's a one and a zero essentially so the idea is if it transmits the current it's a one if it doesn't it's a zero so it's just like a wire today. yeah yeah okay cool as the current is going across the uh, across the diodes, um, the the voltage of the current is what determines the one or the zero, not the um, whether it's whether on it's or off. Yeah, interesting. I did not know that. So, anyways, that and was I think somebody toured Iowa State when that computer was here and ripped it off or something like that, and went and built their own, and actually went to court, hmm. like to decide who built the first one, and Iowa State won. 
I do know that I don't know who was like stealing it and stuff, but I do know that was like there was a contention to know who built the first one based off somebody like using our design. I didn't really know this, but Iowa State back in the day, like Iowa State was one of the more prestigious scientific universities. Being close to Des Moines, like a big city, um, kind of made it a big deal. So like we also produced all of the well, not all of it, but a, we were the first to produce uranium for the Manhattan Project, and we produced the majority of it here. Interesting. I did not know that either. On campus. That's yeah, crazy. I didn't know that until and I learned this in a different class. This could have been in my um, my scan for or my brain gains part. Um, but because <laughs> kind of back in the day, we had some of the best physicists um, in the world that were working. Here. And now we got us guys. So we've upgraded, man. Nice. We're gonna build some some like some crazy. quantum. I think we should like actually start like inventing something and try to be useful with our lives. I've got something. I've got something, but okay. I can't say it on air. Well, no, of course not. But no. I think us protect three, our intellectual capital. Like we are some great engineering minds, you know, and we have yeah. some friends that we could do this with too. But like, I feel like we could put something. Just say TM yeah. after. Yeah. Next computer. The next first computer was <laughs> iMac. So this was the first program. Program. ENIAC. Like I didn't even look that up, ENIAC. but that's definitely how you say that's that. That's what I said. Oh, okay. Yeah, you just how heard do you spell that? I think E-N-I-A-C. You <laughs> I think you just heard me wrong. Oh, okay. Um, There's some f- feedback in my headphones. I've Every time that I've looked at it, I've read it like that, and it's been wrong every time. I do that sometimes. You're like, dyslexic, you're saying. I might be a little <laughs> okay. bit. I'm not going to lie. No, you've got other things wrong with you, but not dyslexia. I, it might be one of them. Um, so this was the first programmable electric comp- digital... <clears throat> the first programmable electric digital computer. I don't understand what that means. So, like, I know you can program it, but, like, the it's just such a mouthful. Go ahead. Um, just looking up, like, the reason it was created. It was supposed, it's the first, like, general purpose computer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This uh, was like one, it's like you can do anything really on it, not yeah. just calculations. Well, it was mostly designed for the U.S. Army to calculate um, artillery firing tables. Yeah. So kind of going back to what the you were talking about about the earlier computer. Yeah. It's pretty similar. Yeah. So one thing computer computers is like it starts in the military often because yeah. they're the people who need it most on the front lines. Quick and efficient calculations is going to give you the upper hand, and if they have the money for it, they're going to want to develop that exactly. too. Exactly. So it makes money. Sense. Yeah. In this time frame, all pretty much all these computers that we're going over here, other than the one that I mentioned from Iowa State, like the Turing machine, ENIAC. And um, some of these later ones I'll mention, the supercomputers of today, are all military computers. They're all used for those purposes. And Nodding. Then, yeah. It's um, pretty impressive. Anyways. It can do up to 5,000 calculations a second. I can do that. Yeah, so that I one, really know I normally clock out at 3,000. I don't, I don't know what you're flexing on right now. <laughs> and that was a 1,000 times faster than any other device at the time. So this one was a pretty big deal. That's a big leap. Um, so the thing about this one, and when I, when I say programmable, um, it means it was able to solve more than just one individual problem. It could be reprogrammed. So, and when I say reprogrammed, this is still the time where we're taking out plugs and plugging them in somewhere else or flipping a switch. So it's still very mechanical, but this was the first time that we could reprogram it to calculate a new kind of problem. I have a little bit more that we could talk about. Okay. Uh, All the designs up to this point stored information in a way that could be read like mechanically or optically. So, a lot of them actually punched holes in paper, and then they could it could um, scan that paper either optically or like mechanically feel if there's a hole in it um, to read a one or a zero. Yeah, um, and that's how they stored information. So the next sort of innovations were how we store this information, um, and one of these was magnetic memory. So, and these are this was generally used for long-term storage because it's kind of difficult to like read quickly, but Magnetic memory would either have, it would flop the poles on a small magnet and then that could be read to see if it was a one, if it's facing one way or zero facing the other. You want to take a break now? Sure. Okay. Now we're back from the break and we're going to talk a little bit about how computers work. And I told Judd, we should do the history of computing before how it works. But now I'm thinking, like, maybe that didn't make a lot of sense. 
Right, because now we're getting into the thing. That, yeah. <sighs> Anyways. Now we're lost. So I was right, you were wrong, but yep. then you were right about something else, and yeah. we changed the episode for that, and I was wrong. So yeah. yeah. Anyways, here we go. I mentioned earlier that as computing power increases, the tools become simpler, but the computations they can do become more complex, yeah. generally, right? Um, so you don't need to know how it works in order to use it, which is fantastic because it's like computers help all of our lives, but we don't need to be a computer engineer to know how it works. But it's still... I think a little bit beneficial to just understand in general how every piece of it uh, fits together. Now, and to choke, and to chote, chote, no way. What word is that? I don't know. (laughs) It was supposed to be quote. And to quote Charles Babbage, who I mentioned earlier about the difference engine, he said, quote, human labor becomes abridged. So it's easier um, to work with more complex machines um, as we increase our computing power. And here's another quote. I'm full of quotes today. Full of quotes. Another from, choke. From the guy who made the step reckoner, Gottfried Leibniz. Choke. Yeah. Uh, you say shut up? Choke. Choke. Okay. <laughs> Another choke is, it is beneath the dignity of an excellent man, and I'll change this to excellent man or woman, to waste their time in calculations when any peasant could do the work just as accurately with the aid of a machine. So, so that's like, the interesting thing. Yeah. Like this is the first time where there's now skilled labor in the sense of computers, yeah, where you are essentially wanting to create a skill gap between being able to use it versus understanding it yeah. and fixing it. Yeah, because it's like people, there, there are so many jobs out there that people would say are not highly skilled jobs, but are employing machines that are highly complex. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of engineers, I guess everyone nowadays yeah. is doing it. But. but so digital computers are what we're, what we're going to talk about specifically because that's the kind of computers uh, that we're using today. And we'll get into different kinds of computers uh, too. Judd, you mentioned like the paper with the holes in it, right? Yeah. So you're feeding a, p- a feeding a computer a paper with holes punched out of it. And the idea of this was like, um, this guy named Herman Hollerth, by the way, we didn't talk about this in the history, but um, 1890 census, census rolls around. You guys know the census, right? Like every 10 yep. years, we got to yep. conduct a census. Yep, 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 yep. There's a lot of people in the United States back in 1890 because of all the immigration. And so their old things that they did didn't really match up anymore. They can't keep track of everybody. So instead, they're like, let's build a computer. And by the way, they said the 1890 census was going to take 13 years to compile. And it's like at that point, wow. it doesn't even, <laughs> you know, you're just going to be catching up to yourself always. Yeah. So they're like, let's build a computer. And this guy named Herman Hollerth does it with these papers where you're feeding in holes. And the idea of it is this pin, like Judd was saying, it's either a one or a zero based on if it goes through the hole or not. And this metallic pin is going, punching down. And if it slides through the hole and into this tub of mercury, it completes a circuit. And so when the circuit's completed, that's how the computer knows. And digital computers aren't actually that different. They're using ones or zeros um, just in terms of electric current. So on or off to determine ones and zeros. And they do this really fast. Um, now let's talk about just some of the pieces that make up a digital computer. And let's start with the BIOS, which is basic input output subsystem, which is essentially like before you even get into an operating system or just like the things we interact with, with a computer, like windows or Mac or anything like that, there's the BIOS, uh, which is basically helping to understand connected inputs. So if you have a mouse plugged in or if you have a keyboard plugged in or a USB drive or anything that's really plugged into the motherboard, the BIOS is going to help, um, understand and compile that information as it comes in so it's like, like a to the whole system kind of yeah so it actually also helps the cpu the central processing unit to know or not be overwhelmed by like you spamming your mouse button or mm. if you're pressing a bunch of things at once it helps know which of those to do first so that it's not like the cpu isn't becoming uh bogged down and so when there's a click there's an interrupt um in the process in what's going on with the G, the CPU. So when you click your mouse, so what the CPU is gonna do is it's gonna say, okay, my mouse was clicked. I need to fetch an instruction outside of the CPU, which is going to tell it, okay, what does this mouse click mean or what do I do with it? So the CPU is taking in a bunch of inputs and going, sending requests to the memory to go find the, yeah. whatever program it is it's supposed to run based on a given input or something like that or a given calculation. Take it to the RAM, yeah. Yeah, and then it's going to, yeah, the RAM is another um, another thing that helps the CPU, but it's going to, once it gets those requests sent to the memory and the memory gives it the instructions, then it's calculating that. And it's doing billions of them at a time. And typically, CPUs have what's known as 32 or 64-bit architecture. 
meaning 2 to the 32, that's 32-bit memory. So that's 2 to the 32 memory addresses at once. So that's how many memory addresses it can handle. And 2 to the 64, that's a way bigger number. Um, so that's that architecture came out like maybe 10 years ago or something like that. But that maybe longer than that at this point, maybe 15. But that helped significantly speed up computers. Now, when you say bit, what do you... What what would what would you say is a bit? A bit is a one or a zero, correct, Judd? Yeah. So I and eight bits, eight ones or zeros make up what's known as a byte. So that's when you hear gigabytes, giga. So it's the combinations, right? Is it okay. eight or sixteen? I, I think it's eight. Okay. Then yeah, I'm eight. confused because well, I'm not confused, but I remember like a 32-bit system as like because like in old video games, if they had a certain number oh, of bits yeah. that they could give, so I think they could only count so high because they could only represent up to, say, what, 128 yeah. or something. So I think um, CPU architecture saying 32-bit or 64-bit means something else than, like, video games, like 8-bit, you think, like, 8-bit art style or 32-bit art style or whatever. That has to do, I think, like, with pixel count and stuff like that and based on how much, like, graphical processing there is. Right. So this is basically just for, like, desktop computers and stuff like that. Um, anyway, so yeah, Judd said the, the, oh, another thing about the BIOS before we uh, move on. So the CPU is the one who's taking in, um, all these requests, sending the request to the memory to say, okay, memory, what do I do if this happens? The memory sends it a program. Um, and we think of programs like these original programs that the CPU is running were written in human coding languages. So Python, C++, Java, like these coding languages but they're eventually compressed down into something that is understandable for the computer. Which is... So, like, binary. Python is something, as a coding language, we understand, but that's different once the computer's running. The computer is reading it as something that is simpler and fits into the memory um, with less space. Uh, and another thing about the BIOS is the BIOS, when you turn on your computer, it runs the boot process, I think I said that, which actually is short for pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which means to start something from the beginning and so what it does is it um tries to access what's known as a boot disk i don't care i'm not even gonna whatever <laughs> the boot pro i'm not getting it we that. don't need to explain the, it. no the boot process is what happens when it starts up your computer and that's what the bios is also um helpful for so eventually these processing units needed a place to store large amounts of information while they're doing their calculations so that's what the ram does is stores data while the cpu makes calculations and then other pieces that are pretty common in digital computers would be like motherboards, which bring all these pieces together. There's the uh, hard drives and SSDs, that's storage, obviously. And then there's a power supply unit, which is going to delegate all the power throughout the computer. And that's all about, that's about all you need to know. Um, but it would be interesting, Judd, to hear s about something called Moore's Law. Yeah. So these. Which has to do with the CPU, which I should actually, let me mention first quick. CPUs use something called transistors. So CPUs are generally built um, with silicon microprocessors, um, which is where the heart of the digital computer revolution began in the 50s is these things called silicon microprocessors. And that's what a CPU is, is just one of these microprocessors. And the name of the game in increasing the power of a microprocessor is cramming more transistors onto the microprocessor. How many times am I going to say microprocessor? Whatever. Um, it allows, a transistor allows for the stoppage and startage of the flow of electrons, which represents ones or zeros. And since, well, I'll let you get into that with Moore's Law, but transistors, the size of them now is about, is in nanometers. Uh, the, that's how they're measured, which is a billionth of a meter. How do you go about designing something that small? The process for designing them, these are, they're very difficult to make. It has something to do with I don't know. All I've seen is the videos, and it's like this purple light that like shines down onto the. It's like lasering transistors onto the chip. I think it might be U chip. UV rays or something like that. So it's I don't know. It's something really interesting. Um, definitely something you should check out. But yeah, but they're getting smaller, and that leads us to Moore's law. Right. So these transistors, like he said, are just all you need is a path where extra electrons can flow through because if they transmit the signal, then it's um, it representing a one or a zero. That's that's how they work. Um, instead of the, you know, the paper, the needle dipping through the paper and things like that. So these microprocessors, the idea behind the microprocessor is to cram as many of these transistors into one small chip as you can. So Moore's law um, states, which was an observation made by 
more, I'm sure at the time, um, <laughs> stated that they were able to see that these microprocessors doubled the amount of transistors that they had every two years. So every two 18 years, months. that's a common misconception because really? one of the, one of the people that he was working with or whatever, um, said 18 months, but it's actually two years. Oh, okay. Still a very short amount of time to double the amount of transistors on a processor. Right. Because like we're saying, so nowadays these transistors are only 70 atoms wide, which is like, when, when I say 70, that kind of sounds like a large number, but we're talking it's about an atom, atom bro. here. So yeah. it's, it's very, very small. If, if the way of increasing processing power is decreasing the size of the transistor, eventually we're going to, like, where does Moore's law end? Like, how small can we f possibly right. go? So, and so we have to look outside of a basic transistor processor system in order to make calculations now. Because just like we move from mechanical to digital, it's like, what is the next revolution, which we'll get into. Moore's law is already kind of ending, so we haven't doubled our transistor account in the past two years so but it, we are still increasing just smaller um yeah and there's so the idea the new innovation now is going to be to create the make these transistors out of different materials other than silicon um the, but they're still going to be uh semi-metals i believe semiconductors so i don't know exactly how that'll all work maybe that's a question for someone else i think we should talk about something a little better than a, co a regular computer i think you could even call it like super it's so good you yeah. know let's take a break and get into supercomputers anywho supercomputers so these things are pretty interesting because it's kind of the next big, well, not necessarily the next big frontier. There's two frontiers for how we're doing computing now, um, and we'll talk about one of them later. But supercomputers are kind of the, the frontier of calculating speed. So when I was talking about measuring the computer speed by a human calculation, that is called, well, that's what's called a flop. So a flop is a way that we measure these computer speeds. and a flop is a simple, say, addition problem, like 13 plus 5 is 18. It takes a human one second to solve those. So one flop is one calculation per second, and that, that calculation is just a simple addition, subtraction, whatever. So an average computer today can operate at a speed of 150 billion flops. So that means your computer that you know, maybe, maybe you have a school laptop or whatever. It can do 150 um, billion addition problems in a second. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. The fastest supercomputer that we have today can operate at a speed of 1.34 teraflops. And if you're not familiar with tera, that means 10 to the 12th. So there's 10, or there's 12 zeros that follow a one. that 1.34. Yeah. This computer... The supercomputer that can do this is owned by the Department of Energy. It's called Frontier. And one interesting thing about this computer is the DOE actually rents out, or they do a, an a, approval process, a grant. Um, they grant out time on the computer to university researchers. Um, for example, they gave some to Michigan State University researchers to study the way that galaxies were moving, um, these large-scale simulations that would require a computer like this. Um, and they gave the researchers 140 hours of runtime, which is not that much, but if you think about how many calculations... That's what can. I was just saying. I was like, what are you doing over there at Michigan State University that you need 140 hours on a supercomputer doing 1.3 teraflops, Yeah, 12 well, zeros? Well, let's talk about what these supercomputers are being used for. All right. Because, I mean, obviously... These are very intense. What do you need to do that many calculations for? Like you said, this is you're not running YouTube on a supercomputer. No, <laughs> although that'd be nuts. Be like, hey, Department of Energy, I'm writing a proposal to you to do serious research <laughs> using your supercomputer, <laughs> and the serious research is just you want to run YouTube at 8K well, at a high bit rate. You might know a little bit. <laughs> you about want to stream our podcast as up. fast as possible. Shut up. That's a valuable use of <laughs> supercomputers. These supercomputers are used to run really complex simulations. So kind of the frontier of research that's being done at a lot of universities um, is to simulate the real world the best way we can to improve our designs and other things like that. So 
they simulate things like climate modeling, weather forecasting, astrophysics, quantum physics. Um, something I could speak on is aerodynamic simulations, like flow around an object. Um, it's very important for aerospace engineering and what I do. And these are very intense um, calculations. Like they require, when you're doing an aerodynamic simulation, you're simulating millions of particles um, at once. So it's a big, big deal. There's this one um, supercomputer called the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong probably, but the Fugaku. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently created an AI tsunami simulation model. And it also um, can help to develop small molecules to fight COVID-19. So kind of like what you were saying yeah. with all yeah. this simulation. I think simulation, you're right. It's definitely where I think our problems are going to be solved the quickest. Well, yeah, one of the other like things that these supercomputers run is simulations on protein folding, which is like a big deal in oh. for solving like or finding a cure for something like um, the COVID coronavirus. So um, protein folding is also one way that we uh, hypothesize that could cure cancer if we can figure out how to properly fold protein and model these. Um, so yeah, it's, anyways, it's kind of a big deal because these proteins can arrange themselves in a large number of ways. There's like millions of combinations. So if we can figure out the right one, then maybe we can do it. Yeah. So with supercomputers, it's like we want to, like you said, they're not used by just normal people. They're used to model very complex situations. And it's like you can, even with supercomputers, we're going to be reaching a limit to how accurately we can model these situations because there's so many variables yeah. involved like a normal person wouldn't run a supercomputer like we could go break into the doe lab and try to run it but we would just be twiddling our thumbs and we would be lost we wouldn't even know how to run it so it's like they're just they're very they're used for very unique applications yeah so similar to how you guys how computers were once like you know very advanced like no one had them do you guys think supercomputers will be something that will become accessible and smaller mm. That's a good know, question. Man. I mean, so how I would work? imagine, yes, like we can just as assume based on trends of past computers that eventually they'll get to a point where the barrier of entry is lowered to the normal person. Right. right. But like we've been talking about, we've reached a physical limit on True. the size of these transistors. So how these C these comp supercomputers work is the, really the only difference is they're running more than one CPU at a time. So more than one central processing unit. So you might it's I don't really know how they get these central processing where it's units to work together yeah, like to coordinate both, yeah. but solve the problem at the same time um but that's really the only difference between our computers and a supercomputer is they're running um multiple cpus by one of two methods um one's called symmetric multiprocessing and then the other one's called parallel processing um so i don't know these are very complex um computing techniques that i don't know much about but i know that like there's not too much of a difference between a supercomputer and the computer that we run. It's just has more, um, it's running more CPUs at once. So it's able to calculate more at once. So, yeah. so with all this supercomputing happening, obviously when you do stuff like that, it tends to get very hot. So yeah. I was curious about, you know, how they cool it. It looks like they use yeah. water instead of air. Yeah, air cool cooling systems down. are pretty much the typical thing you'll see in like yeah. our daily electronic devices, yeah. but cool, water cooling systems are much better at, like think about water. Water is a good conductor, so we know that it can carry the heat away more effectively than d generally air could. Yeah, and the other reason that we use water is it has a very high, um, I can't remember the exact Specific word for heat. it. Specific heat. It needs, it's very difficult to raise the temperature of water. It needs more energy to raise the temperature. It needs more yeah. than almost any other molecule that we, not almost any other like liquid that we know. Because of hydrogen bonds, right? Hydrogen bonds. They're yeah. hard to break. Um, okay. Well, let's pause it there. I mean, that might be it. Yeah. Well, well let's, let's segue into kind of an, another frontier. Yeah. Just like a small segment into what we have for the future computing. Okay. Well... As Judd said, we're going to reach a physical limit on what we can do with CPUs. But that doesn't mean our desire to model complex situations such as the entire universe or such as diseases and growth of bacteria and stuff like that. Our desire for that is not going to slow down, which is why we need quantum computers 
which is another frontier in computing to introduce an insane level of computing. And we're talking, so regular digital computers, we're talking ones and zeros, Mm -hmm. but quantum computers can be a one or a zero or anything in between, which is perfect because reality is not ones and zeros. As much as you want to believe simulation theory or anything, even if you do believe simulation theory, you'd probably be unwise to assume that the simulation in which you're living in is based off of a computer with ones and zeros. It is something far more complex, which we will have to get into next episode when we explain to you exactly how quantum computing works, where it's going to take us, and what its limits are. Yeah, I just think if we can't solve the problem on transistors and increasing the size of those, let's just change the whole way that we compute and get away from ones and zeros, but also be a one and a zero at the same time. Exactly. Anyways, yeah, that's weird. I'll leave you. Yeah, it's if it doesn't make sense, that's perfect that's because it's just that's the, that's next the next episode. It's perfect for you to come back and listen to. I'll leave you with one thought here. Computers are what's known as deterministic machines, meaning it takes an, a, a process or an algorithm, or whatever the CPU is taking its directions and executing them. So if I ask a computer to generate a random number, it is going to have a process or an algorithm to determine that random number. It can be a very complex algorithm so that it's hard to determine what pattern it's choosing this random number in, but there's no such thing as a random number on a regular computer. I just think it's interesting because you can go on Google and do a dice roll and stuff like that, but it will never be perfectly random. There's another good Veritasium video on that. Yes. If there is no random numbers that are able to be generated by computers and the universe is a logical system, which we know we can model mathematically, it is not impossible to assume that the universe itself can't generate true random and that everything happens for a reason. Just like you listening to this podcast right now happened for a reason. I'm speechless. You just say nodding. 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 (laughs) Nodding. Nodding. Okay, guys, that's all we have for you today. Um, Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Nate, for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. And he's going to be back to talk with us about quantum computing and stuff like that. If he wants to. He probably wants to quit now because he just spent a, this much time in a room with us, but we'll see. Yeah, these guys have a lot of bacteria poop on them. It's smelling oh, pretty bad right now. come on. Hey, it all goes full circle. That's nice. Um, and Everything does happen for a reason, though. You're, you're meant to be here, Nate. Just like last night when I drove past the Little Caesars Pizza when Drake <laughs> was singing, I bet that's how Julius Caesar died. You remember the weirdest things. Okay, but then I came home here. and no, you were no, eating no, Little Caesars. It. it happens for a reason, right? Thank you, university. Thank you, university. Yeah, okay. Uh, take care, guys. Tune in in two weeks to listen to a special episode about quantum computing. Nice. <laughs> Let's go on. Yeah, that was kind of fun.